Good morning. So good to see each and every one of you. Visitors, we are very much appreciative of you being here today. Uh, Amanda has her family with her today. There's uh, the Brewers here on the back seat. There's the Robinson sisters on the third seat from the old Bargetown Road Church of Christ, I understand. And there are some others that maybe I have not met yet. So before you leave this morning, look around and see who you don't know and that you, who you haven't spoken to yet this morning. And then go find out about them and speak to them. That is, other than Dan and Lori, okay? <laughs> I know we don't know who they are, but they're back from a... How long were you gone? Two months? Two months. Tour of the Western United States. Uh, get Lori started talking about all the rocks that she has brought back. Half of the state of Arizona is now in their yard. <laughs> along with some petrified wood. But uh, we're glad you had a safe trip, a good trip, but we're also more glad that you're back here this morning. I am, uh, well, I'm the preacher, but I'm not the preacher. I I'm the preacher because it says so in the bullet, and it's got a little thing on my mic right here that says preacher. So that makes me know that I am the preacher. We are without a preacher Today, for the first time in almost four years, a permanent preacher. Mickey has, as Elvis used to say, left the building and has gone back to Arkansas. He is still in flux with his job. Cindy has settled into her new job. The house has been uh, emptied and cleaned. Uh, we're getting ready to put the utilities back in the church's name, and we're in the process of hiring uh, a new minister. Uh, I say we're in the process. We're looking at resumes. And when we get to one that is a person that we want to bring in and evaluate uh, a little closer in front of you, then, then we will do that. But as of yet, no one has surfaced that we've gotten to that uh, place in our search yet. Our lesson starts today, and we're in kind of a series that I haven't really identified it as a series that I call Sharing Your Faith. You remember last time I preached the, the, important, the most important work of the church, the most important work of the church, the most important work of the church is sharing your faith, making disciples. If you want to turn over to the book of Acts, and in chapter 16, we're going to pick up there, and Paul and his group are just barely into Paul's second missionary journey. All of Paul's missionary journeys start in the city of Antioch, which is just a few miles from his hometown of Tarsus. I don't know. The map shows it could be 40 or 50 miles, but it's in the general vicinity of where he's comfortable 
because that's where he grew up, that's where he was born and resided for a number of years. They're now, as we pick up in verse 6, they're now, they've been to Derby and Lystra and Iconium up in the first couple of verses. They've, he's met Timothy. He's decided that it's prudent to have Timothy circumcised because he's of Jewish and Greek descent. And it's going to be better for them to not have to face this issue on their, uh, their tours. And so as we pick up in verse 6, and, and as they went through the region of Perga and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Now, let's, let's put this in English. They're in Knoxville, or northern, northwestern, northeastern Tennessee. And they decide they're going to go on a missionary journey, so they're, they're traveling up to Lexington, Kentucky. And their intent was to take I-64 and go all the way across to St. Louis. How many of you have taken that trip before? Lexington to St. Louis. Oh, it's a wonderful trip. Flat farmland, and that's all you see for four hours. Cornfield after cornfield after cornfield. I'm not trying to insult you who are from Illinois and Indiana, but that's all you see on that trip. But it's anticipation of, of getting to St. Louis. And wh while the Bible says that the gospel is supposed to be taken to all the world, for some reason, the Holy Spirit... And the Spirit of Jesus Himself prohibits and says, No, you can't go. You go a different direction. And so rather than taking the trip they wanted to go, to go into Asia, to, to head on to St. Louis, they're diverted up to Indianapolis. And they do okay, and they decide, Okay, we're going to go on up to Detroit. But the, the Spirit says, No. You can't go to Detroit, so they got to go to Chicago. And when they're around Chicago, they see this vision of a man in, in South Dakota saying, come over here and help us. Come, we need to have the gospel preached unto us. And so they went there. They headed to South Dakota the call had come and has come ever since that day. People have been asking for people to come and preach the gospel to them. How many of you have been to New York City? Wow, lots of you have. Isn't that an intimidating place for somebody from Fernie Creek? <laughs> I've been there several times on business, never been on 
on my own nickel with my own uh, schedule there. And, and truthfully, it's better to go on somebody else's nickel to tell you the truth because it's so ex expensive, hotels and food and all that kind of stuff. I remember my first trip. Man, I'm, I'm a young buyer for the General Electric Company, and we're going there to some big highfalutin steel meeting that I don't know anything about. But I just knew we were in New York, and man, was I excited. We flew in the night before, and the guy I was with was my senior, and I ultimately ended up replacing him a number of years later. That was the whole purpose of, of doing this. But I wanted to go out and see the town. Gil Sittler, my protege, said, come on up to the hotel room and we'll read the Wall Street Journal. Boy, that was my first night in New York City in another guy's bedroom, and he was in his BVDs with his undershirt on and his socks pulled up. And I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, you're going to tell this story 30 years from now, and people are going to think it's a lie, but it's the absolute truth. My first night in New York was spent in a hotel room with another man in his underwear. Reading the newspaper. So the next morning, I was anxious to get on the streets, out into the public. And so we hit the lobby, and, and we, were not, we were going to the Plaza Hotel. That's where the conference was. <laughs> I mean, this is highfalutin stuff, folks. I'm, I'm in with the, some goodies here now. But we weren't staying at the Plaza because we we're a GE because... They were tight, okay? You know, a $300 hotel room at the plaza or a $150 hotel room around the corner in Harlem, you know? So we get the cheaper hotel and we'll walk into the plaza. And I, I'm excited about it. Right? We, got a, we got a, I don't know, 10, 12 block walk early in the morning in the streets of New York, my first time. I am excited. And man, was it busy and noisy. And the cabbies were honking their horn, and every time they would honk their horn, I would, I would jump. And so we're standing on this street corner, and, and I'm going to yell very loudly in a minute I, I, to just simulate what happened, so I don't want to scare you ahead of time, okay? And so we're standing there in this mass of humanity at the corner of two streets when a man who's Hispanic that I've never seen before or since yells, He's coming! And I almost hit the ground. And he, you know what he's talking about? Jesus Christ. There on the streets of New York. The, the last thing I expected was anyone to be thinking about Jesus Christ at that particular time. That man was so unashamed of his faith that on the Monday morning in, in June of 1989, he was willing to yell in front of a bunch of strangers who had their heads down, who could care less about what he was saying. And his, his words were, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, because he is coming back. 30 years later, folks, I can recall that story. I can feel it again, what I felt that particular day. 
I was already excited, and then I was scared, and then I was in admiration of that young man and his willingness. I'm thinking to myself, he's in grunge and I'm in a suit, but I didn't, I didn't stop and get on my milk carton and stand in front of this crowd and start preaching like he did. We need to look around us and look at every potential person as a potential customer for the gospel. There's an old story, preachers tell it all the time, or maybe you hear it all the time. Two shoe companies, two separate shoe companies, send a man, send two different men to this area that's not wearing any shoes. The one guy calls back and he says, oh, this was a waste of time and money and effort because you've sent me to a place where no one wears shoes. And you know the answer to the other one. The other one calls back and says, send more people, send more shoes. We got a gold mine here. Everybody doesn't wear shoes, but they need to be. And so from a different perspective, two people come up with an entirely different conclusion and a different thought process. We have this mental checklist sometimes, things that we, we use to determine when we look at someone and we size them up and we predict and we sense and we say, likely candidate or not for the gospel. And then based upon that, we either are inactive or we do something. How about a person that we look at and they're already morally responsible? they got good morals. They don't, go, they don't do all the right things and they're not identified and they haven't responded to the gospel, but from a morality standpoint, they're pretty good people. You know? They don't break the law. They don't cheat on their taxes. They, they, they won't take the wrong change back. They won't lie to you, so forth and so on. But they don't know anything about the gospel. And we look at them and we say, oh, we have got so far to go with these. How do you convince a person who thinks they're good that they're a sinner? And so we make a conscious decision on their ability or susceptibility of accepting the gospel. Maybe they're not... Maybe they are uh, not wealthy enough for us. You know, what we want is, is people that come in that, that, that dress in nice clothes, you know, and they reach down deep in their pocketbook and like you all, you know, we want your money kind of thing. You know, the story you were talking about in Sunday school, you know. Uh, we see them as a, a number here and a number here, and that's what we're interested in. But if they come in and they got rags on their, on their back and dirty feet and so forth and so on, we sort of size them up and say, oh, man, they're indigent. Or they're, they're going to be a drain on our resources. They're going to be people that are going to be needy. And we don't want to preach to them. We're not really interested in them becoming a member of our church. 
Maybe they're not active religiously at all. They're not atheistic. They're not, they're not saying no to God. They just, they're, they're kind of, without sounding rude to them, they're kind of ignorant about religion in general. And so we look at them and we say, oh my goodness, we have got so far to go. We've got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and lay the pipes and to lay the tile and to lay the framework and so forth and so on. It will take years to get this person to their understanding of the gospel. And so we make a decision. Maybe they're not fit. Maybe they're not right for the gospel. How about when they come in and, and they tell us what sin they got in their life? Oh. We want to bring sinners into the church? It just doesn't sound right, does it? They're a sinner. They're living in sin. They come in and they tell us their circumstances, and we make a judgment that says, you ain't never going to get out of sin. And so, we don't want to waste our time. We only want people that look like us, act like us, smell like us, talk like us, and function like us. But when Paul got his dream or his vision, come over and help us, Paul and his entourage went. There are several different places in the Bible that, wow, I'm already at 1115. I hadn't even turned the first page yet. Okay. There are several times in the, in the New Testament in which somebody was unworthy of being preached to. They really were. But yet they were preached to. Saul. He's the, he's the chief, right? Killed Christians, put them in jail, was on the road to Damascus, was converted. <coughs> Ananias was sent to him, and Ananias said, man, the bad dude. I hear how much havoc he's... Are you sure you want me to go? Yeah, go preach to him. And look what happened. Three great missionary journeys. How many letters that he write in the New Testament? How many people got exposed to the gospel just because he was selected and chosen because a man got over his fear of going and talking to him and he responded to the gospel? Jesus and Matthew. Do you know what Matthew was? What? Tax collector. Do you know what tax collectors were in the New Testament? Bad dudes. They didn't like them because they cheated or they imposed uh, a tax and they skimmed off the top, probably. You know, you owe 100. If I can get 150 out of you, I pay the 100 to the government and I keep the 50 for myself. What about that is not right? Why do you think they weren't right? Jesus called Matthew in Matthew 9, verse 9, I think it is. Yeah. And he was sitting at the tax booth. It wasn't any surprise what Matthew was. He said, come follow me, Matthew. And Matthew got up and, and, and followed him right then. 
Then a few verses down, it says, and then Jesus was found eating with tax collectors and sinners. Wow. Wow. Jesus also called to be an apostle, a man by the name of Simon the Zealot. You remember that? Now, I have to admit ignorance because I don't know much about Simon the Zealot. He's not ever really followed up on in the New Testament that I can find where he did anything that that I can find. But he was one of the disciples that got pushed to the rank of apostle because Jesus called him. I always figured zealot and zealous, they they sound kind of close to each other, right? I always figured Simon was a pretty good dude. You know what a zealot was in, the, in this day and time? A revolutionary. Simon belonged to a group of people that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Now, have you ever seen a revolutionary that you know, wasn't involved in some kind of fight or skirmish or battle or guerrilla warfare or something? I mean, when you're fighting against the government, it's, it's not a, a joyous occasion. I mean, you're trying to overthrow the existing political rule, and you get a bunch of people to work underground. He could have even killed people for all that matter. But Jesus called him. He was one of Jesus' disciples who he promoted to being an apostle. I got four or five more. I'll end with one, the last one, in this section. Don't get your hopes up already. Thief on the cross. Thief on the cross. Uh, We know about the, the good one. The good one. But when you read the crucifixion accounts, you know, Jesus was being mocked, spit at or spit on. And in both, in two of the gospel accounts, the thieves on the cross were railing on Jesus as well. They were part of it. One of the gospel, maybe both of the gospels, says that the crowd was wagging their heads at Jesus. I don't know what that meant at their day and time, but I can tell you what I think it means. Yeah, hot shot. Look at you now, buddy. You said all this stuff, you preached all this stuff, you did all this stuff, and now look where you're at. And the thieves on the cross, the one on the left and the one on the right, were doing the same thing that the crowd was doing. They were railing on Jesus. And finally the one says to the other, Hey, shut up over there. We deserve what we're getting This man is innocent, he hadn't done anything, and he's right here suffering the consequences. And then he turns to Jesus and says what? Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said what? Today, this day, you'll be in paradise with me. 
He was a robber that deserved crucifixion. I don't know. There's many people on our list that are unlikely Christians from, from just their profession. Anybody? Okay, I'm going to go through these real quickly. Kenny Perry, golfer, he's Christian. Byron Nelson, Christian. He's dead and gone, but he was one of the greatest golfers that ever lived. They called him Gentleman Byron, or Lord Byron. Everybody knew of his conviction. A man that I was very admiring of because he was a, a miler when I was young, thin, and running track. Jim Ryan. David Robinson, big seven-footer. San Antonio Spurs, played for Navy. He's a Christian. And I'm talking about a church of Christ Christian. Fred Thompson, you remember that name? Played on Law and Order, was the governor of Tennessee or a senator from Tennessee, I forget which. Senator. And then he played uh, one of the characters in Die Hard 2, you know, in the airport movie. Pad Boone, who can forget Pad Boone and all the stuff he's been through. Janice Joplin. Oh, I bet you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> she was raised. Now, she kind of long departed, but her childhood was spent in the church. I didn't know that. Dwight Yoakam. Did y'all know that? Who said yep? Okay. I didn't know Dwight Yoakam. Randy Travis? Member of the church? Glenn Campbell? Not maybe later in life, but he had the same kind of circumstances that Janis Joplin did. He was brought up in the church. Meatloaf. <laughs> Come on. Who, know, who knew Meatloaf was a Christian? You, didn't know, you, don't, you don't even know who Meatloaf is? Yeah. <laughs> you knew he's a Meatloaf, he was a Christian? Wow. Where have I been? This one really surprised me. Waylon Jennings was brought up in the church. Now, he was infamous for being outlaw country, and I don't know what all he got involved in and did, but he, at one time, was attached to the church. Loretta Lynn? Marty Rowe. You know who Marty Rowe is? Anybody? Anybody? Going once, going twice. Would you recognize Diamond Rio if I told you? Marty Rowe was one of the singers, the two lead singers, Diamond Rio. He's a Christian. Ken Starr, that name sound familiar? He was the prosecuting attorney in Bill Clinton's impeachment process. Graduate of Pepperdine, big legal guy, big in government. Ronnie Dunn, Brooks and Dunn, he's a Christian. Scotty Hamilton, the skater, yeah, thank you. And then lastly, or not, next to last, Lester Holt. Lester Holt is a member of the Manhattan Church of Christ, and we see him, I don't know, a couple times a week on the news or his late night show, so forth and so on. And now the coup de grace, Jeffrey Dahmer, If we make it to heaven and he makes it to heaven, I hope you shake his hand. 
Everybody know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? Yeah. Serial killer. Gay serial killer. Killed 17 people and I don't know. Was he cannibalistic too? Yeah, okay. All right. In prison for his crimes, someone in a prison ministry from the Churches of Christ said, this man, this hideous man, this murderer, this cannibal, deserves having the gospel preached to him. And he did. And Jeffrey Dahmer responded to the gospel and was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins before he was killed in prison. I used to have an uncle that said, I pity the poor Church of Christ preacher that brought him into the church. We'll be forever known as Jeffrey Dahmer's. He couldn't forget his past. He couldn't shake who he was and, and what his name was. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came here in the form of physical man, and it is the greatest story of history that history has ever heard. It is the greatest story of love. It is the greatest story of sacrifice. It is the greatest story of grace that's ever been written or enacted. And in order to obey the gospel, everyone must die to sin, repent of those sins, and then live a different and a characteristic life as a Christian. So our temptation is to analyze our audience and then adapt the gospel so that we soften it. So we don't hurt anybody's feelings. They're living in sin. I'm sorry I have to point that out. They're good morally, but that's not enough. They've never confessed Jesus Christ in front of men, and they don't believe in Him, and without that, regardless of what people want to say, without that, the Bible teaches, you don't have a chance. And that sounds hard. And so for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, we've, we've softened the gospel to meet the conditions and the needs of the people that we think we're delivering it to. 
And none of these other folks in history did. Paul didn't. Jesus didn't. Peter didn't. They taught the death, the burial, and the resurrection of God. Was Jesus politically correct? PC, as we say today. When the rich young ruler came to him in John, Luke chapter 18, Jesus sized him up pretty quick. He's a pretty good dude. He'd kept all these things all his life. Jesus, in his ability to read his mind, said, well, there's one thing you're missing right now, buddy. Go sell all you got. Give it to the poor. Follow me. Wow. Hit him right in the gut. That's the way he felt. Jesus was aiming for his heart. But the man felt like he'd been given a hit to the gut. Nicodemus says, what, i got to be born again? How can I do that? And so he was taught. When Jesus was speaking to the woman in adultery, they wanted to stone. Woman, where are your accusers? Ah, they've left. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Acts 20, verse 27, and we'll close. Boy, y'all sure have missed some good parts in this lesson, man. On the first day of the week, 2027, wrong verse, 2027. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Our job in sharing our faith is to make sure that we understand that every person is a potential candidate. Get this filter out of your head on what you want, who you want, who you vote in, who you won't vote in. And recognize that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And anyone who is lost needs the gospel preached to him and the job is given to you. Don't you turn. No, 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 no. It's you. It's your job. No, it's mine too. And that's what keeps that number at 91. And we're going to get, with this new minister, we're going to get on board to doing our job and our responsibility of teaching people. Now, are we going to be disliked? Yep. It's not always a fun subject. People got things they need to get out of their lives and get straight and get ready. But we don't have to do it in a nasty way. Just let the gospel flow. He's coming someday. Let's tell the world. Let's do what God has told us to do. If you have a need or a desire this morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, if you've never confessed him, the baptistry is ready. People are ready to receive your confession. We will immerse you for the forgiveness of your sin. Or if you've done that,
need to be restored, need to be set on the right path again, as we often always do. The invitation is ready for you this morning.